Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining me today is Ilan Berman, the president of the American Foreign Policy Council, to discuss his new report or short book, depending on how you want to look at it, Challenging Moscow's Message, Russian Disinformation, and the Western Response. He traveled extensively to write this little book, uh, spending time with allies who have been crafting thoughtful approaches to countering Russian disinformation, as well as one of the best uh, descriptions of how uh, Russia has viewed disinformation all the way back to Tsarist times. Uh, Ilan, welcome back to the program. It's always have, uh, a pleasure having you on. Oh, thank you, Baga. And I, I just have to say, you know, any book that mentions uh, how the Okhrana, uh, the Tsarist secret police, was using this information, you pretty much uh, stuck the landing and got a perfect 10. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I, I always try to um, name check uh, repressive SARS practices in, in my writing. Uh, a nice go-to move. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. So as I said, it's, it's a great report and I commend the audience to check it out. A lot of great history uh, in here. Uh, and the description of how, right, I mean, from Tsarist times and certainly you know, the Soviet Union and its notion of continuous competition and conflict and confrontation uh, that was uh, part of the message, right? Stalin was, you know, executing the reign of terror. And yet uh, all around the West and in the United States, there was an adoration of the Soviet Union and, you know, how they were helping the, the plight of the workers. And that was an information campaign that that proved to be remarkably uh, successful, right? And that's before we get into all the actions throughout the span of the Cold War, and certainly what Vladimir Putin uh, and his team are up to uh, now. Everybody knows the 2016 election, but their efforts are much more dramatic. G- give the audience your top line takeaways on what it is they have to remember uh, about Russia and and its uh, view of uh, the information space as a warfighting domain. Sure. Well, there, there's uh, a couple of, of really, I think, important top line takeaways. Um, some of them are intuitive. Some of them are old. And, and at least one of them is new. Uh, first is that uh, information warfare is a very logical extension of how Moscow sees the world uh, in terms of competition. And, and it, this is a, a strategic culture type of thing. But here in the United States, we tend to think of a bright line division between war and peace. We tend to think about diplomacy up until the point that diplomacy breaks down and war breaks out. Um, in Russia, uh, all stretching all the way back to Tsarist times, that was not the way uh, the Kremlin saw uh, the, the conduct of global affairs. Uh, and extending into today, what you see is that uh, warfare is politics by other means in a very real sense for the Russians. Um, and before that, for the Soviets, uh, they saw uh, see uh, diplomacy and politics and political manipulation as all part of a larger strategy conducted uh, during peacetime as well as during wartime to advance geopolitical objectives. And that's why um, we tend to have a problem understanding what the Russians are trying to do in the information space, because we assume that uh, the operative mode in which they interact with us is diplomacy, uh, unless there is some sort of crisis. And, and you know, we, we get down to 
you know, the potential for military conflict. But in fact, the Russians are continually advancing their geopolitical objectives through a variety of means. Diplomacy is one of them, but information operations and media manipulation is a very big one, all the way back uh, decades upon decades. Uh, the reason, uh, and this is, uh, I, I think, the second uh, sort of constant, the reason Russia invests so heavily uh, in even today, uh, in a, in a constrained environment, when you know they're they're dealing with a wartime budget, they're dealing with a military conflict uh, that isn't going well in Ukraine, um, but they're still investing billions, literally billions of dollars annually on uh, media manipulation, uh, both in terms of constructing an internal apparatus of information, but also messaging outward, and it's because it works. They understand and and they see through how they're able to disrupt and devalue and subvert democratic processes in the West, that this sort of soft power is at least as effective as anything they do on the battlefield. And the third oh. takeaway, which is, which is I think important, is that they now have more opportunity to do that because the media environment is very different today than it was in the past. Uh, you have a super saturated media environment. You have all this... Uh, information pollution uh, that, you know, uh, driven by unaccountable websites, driven by unaccountable uh, actors, uh, bot accounts, uh, sort of uh, uh, Twitter uh, accounts that uh, promote misinformation, disinformation. This is an environment that is optimally suited for the manipulation of information and uh, manipulation uh, in a global sense by the Russians. We'll talk to current operations, but the Russians are uh, right. I mean, there's a large body uh, of evidence on the role that Russian uh, disinformation and misinformation and the brilliance with which stories were planted. Walk us through a little bit of this uh, history as far back as you want to go and as many examples you want to use that's, that stand out as sort of brilliant examples of how the Russians have have shaped the information space, right? Because it was always to try to, uh, you know, fracture American politics or separate the United States from its allies, right? I mean, in part, um, I, you know, the anti-nuclear movement, however well-intentioned, right. had Russian right. fingerprints on it because it was exacerbating. Walk us through some of the campaigns and how successful, actually, they proved. Sure. No, and, and the anti-nuclear movement is a good example. But to me, when I was writing this, the example, the sort of the quintessential example that jumped out was something called Operation Infection. And this was something that uh, the Russians launched, the Soviets launched in the mid-1980s, and it was built around uh, the promotion of the conspiracy theory that uh, HIV AIDS had been created by the U.S. government as part of a biological weapons research program. And right, and it was a fabricated story, but it was picked up by uh, agents and, and outlets of Soviet propaganda, and it was disseminated to the point where within two years, the campaign had been reported in something like 80 countries, 30 different languages. And it definitely played on this idea, um, the sort of the distrust of government that existed within the United States. Um, and, you know, there was uh, at, at exactly that time, there was a panic surrounding AIDS, which was then poorly, uh, poorly understood and it was not regulated. It was not uh, sort of being addressed by the healthcare community. It was something that the, the Soviets could really play with uh, in a way that would deepen divisions within the United States. And uh, the, uh, the lasting effects of this, I think, really need to be understood. Um, so so I, I sort of I, I put in the book, but um, 
there was this this study uh, from 2005 from The Lancet, which is a medical journal, which, you know, the, the findings just blew me away, right? The Lancet found that one in three African-Americans uh, in 2005 still believed that HIV was produced in a government lab, and one in seven was convinced that the disease had been created by the U.S. government to control the country's Black population. That is a measure of effectiveness in terms of information operations. The idea that you could have those sort of societal divisions not only be created, uh, but to last for over a quarter of a century. Uh, that is uh, absolutely extraordinary uh, that in this day and age, right? I mean, but once it ends, uh, you know, ideas like these enter the collective consciousness, they have a tendency of just sort of resonating around, even if they make absolutely no sense and have been totally debunked, uh, right? Which is which is the problematic nature of it. Walk us through all of those experiences, uh, Ilan, have paved the way for the way Russians uh, execute these operations today. Uh, people think of the 2016 election and Russian uh, interference in it, but Russian interference is also very clever um, and exists whether they're trying to shape a right-wing audience, whether they're trying to shape a progressive audience, uh, and whether they're trying to shape the middle uh, that get, gets caught into this. And right, they're also shaping in a variety of different nations uh, across Europe, right, to exacerbate divisions between the United States, right? So again, fracture American society and also separate America from its allies. You know, right. there's no, and- even Russian fingerprints in the anti-Semitism that we're seeing now, right, fueling it for a whole variety of, 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 of reasons. Walk us through some I- of the campaigns that they're doing and how they're doing them, because well, you have to learn inter- that before you can counter it. No, no, it's exactly right. And what's interesting here to me is that it's all about the concept, which all of the listeners know, that all politics are local. So any of these campaigns have to be racked and stacked against what they're intended to do. And that's why uh, I, I think we're very unsophisticated in how we, we collectively in the West think about Russian disinformation, because it's not as simplistic as the Russians like a certain political candidate and they don't like others. It's much more accurate to say that it's a broad attempt to devalue and destabilize and inject doubt in democratic institutions and processes. Because ultimately what Vladimir Putin is trying to do through uh, manipulating social media in the run up to the 2016 election, through uh, funding uh, far right parties uh, in, uh, in all over Europe and in Eastern Europe through gobbling up media concerns uh, in the Balkans and the Baltics, right? What he's trying to do is he's trying to telegraph in all these subtle myriad ways to his own domestic population. Hey, listen, I know things look a little crazy. I know things uh, don't look great. I know that we're having a failure to thrive in political and economic terms. But look over there, look across the border, look how crazy and chaotic it is. Wouldn't you want managed democracy the way I define it? Um, and so all of this chaos, all of this noise, all of this, uh, as uh, that famous Rand study put it, this fire hose of falsehood that the Russians are pushing out are intended to lock populations in place. They're intended to prevent resolute action. And a great example here is the tragic downing of the uh, Malaysian Airlines Flight uh, 17 over eastern Ukraine um, in uh, the summer of 2014. 
um, that was a uh, that was carried out by pro by all accounts uh, pro Russian Russian supported separatists in uh, the Donbas region, um, and yet the way the Russians responded, uh, by the way, using uh, sort of Russian uh, Russian uh, surface to air missiles, but the way the Russians responded was very telling. They didn't advance an alternative theory of the case. They advanced like six of them, right? Because the goal here was not to right. escape culpability. The goal here was to inject enough doubts into what actually happened so as to frustrate international investigations, so as to prevent any consequences. And it was remarkably successful. Um, what are, What is the way to counter these narratives? Um, they are pernicious. They're very clever. Um, they have truthiness to them, right? I mean, they, they have a tendency of gaining traction. Um, there are a million fake accounts through which, right? I mean, the mechanisms, I mean, right? I mean, they were being incredibly sophisticated throughout the Cold War into the 1930s and the 1920s, right? And now we have a whole bunch of tools that make it even easier to spread this, right? I mean, you don't have to belong, you know, get literature that can be tracked by the FBI necessarily. What did you learn by traveling, whether it's to Scandinavia or Europe or the Baltics or elsewhere, about the way to counter this? Because the United States is very different in terms of the freedom of the press and the freedom of speech and the freedom and the lack of oversight that we have over the mechanisms of information, which which makes it different, as you said, right? All politics are local. Right. No, and, and listen, that's exactly right. And and that's why the, the sort of the middle of the book, the middle of the study was really this sort of attempt by me through this, all these interviews, this uh, sort of firsthand research that I did all over Europe over the last year to try to get at the best practices um, that, you know, countries as far flung as Sweden and the Czech Republic and Finland and Estonia and all these others were engaging in. What, what have they done right? What have they done wrong? Right. And it's not a perfect science, but what you can glean is a few nuggets of information. First of all, media literacy is huge. Media literacy uh, in the way the Estonians do it, in the way the Finns do it, is crucial because what it allows you to do is the most, in every society, the most avid consumers of digital disinformation potentially are the younger generations. So if you can build a robust uh, curriculum of media literacy beginning in grade school, uh, the way, for example, the, the Finns have done it, um, it is a, an enormous boon because it allows you to uh, flag early on for your population who might otherwise be susceptible to precisely the type of the types of tropes um, that would create societal discord, that this is actually not organic. This doesn't belong in our society. This is somebody uh, that's generating something. The second, and this is a, a, a really a European thing, it's, it's something that, that uh, we don't have experience with, is that there is a uh, recognition of the reality and the proximity of the Russian threat. The bear is at the door. Uh, in a very real way. You talk to people in the Czech Republic and they will tell you that, you know, the bear is at the door. You talk to people in Lithuania and they will tell you they have a whole of society approach designed to prevent Russia from undermining, um, undermining societal cohesion. We don't have that. And so when we think about Russian disinformation, we don't really look at it as nearly as grave a threat as the Europeans do. 
we tend to look at it in the context almost entirely domestically, right? 2016, 2020, the Russians meddled a little bit on Facebook. They weren't very effective. Um, what's there really there to be worried about? And in those places, there really is an immediacy and an urgency to building a national response. And the third part, um, which is, I, I think, huge, is the, the need for multiple stakeholders in society to take on this mission. It's not enough to have uh, you know, a, an analog to Voice of America or an analog to the Global Engagement Center, which is the State Department's uh, counter-messaging shop. Uh, in places that are really high functioning, places like Lithuania, uh, places like Finland, uh, what you have is you have a whole of society approach. Um, you have multiple government agencies, you have fusion centers, um, you have taskings that are very, uh, uh, sort of very deliberate and, and very detailed about how to respond to uh, disinformation, how to respond to how to shape the media environment and understand that this is very much a national security construct. And that's really uh, a, a knowledge that we, or a recognition that we don't have, at least not yet. What's the way in our context to do this, given how big the stakes are, right? I mean, right. Russian fingerprints right. are not only shaping the debate about Russia, um, they're feeding all sorts of tropes. As I mentioned, anti-Semitism is, is, you know, has sadly always been high and is rising and is being propelled. Um, and we're going to talk about that a little bit in in terms of um, you know the the narrative and and what are the lessons from uh, Israel's campaign against Hamas and and the backlash from it. What are some of the specific things that policymakers and America's leaders, whether they're in the White House or anything else, have to bear in mind about how to do this? Because right, I mean, all you need to be is an Elon Musk who buys Twitter, turns it into X, and then takes all the controls off. And now my feeds are full of all sorts of kookery as opposed to <laughs> right. anything credible. That's right. Well, listen, there, there's a few things, but just to sort of for the, for the sake of brevity, um, let me highlight a, a couple. The first is resident expertise, right? And this sounds very intuitive, but it's amazing. And, and all of your listeners who have uh, worked in the national security space for a long time, you all, uh, I, I think, understand this very well. It's amazing how much over the decades we have forgotten. And so if you look back at the 1980s, um, there was a very robust cohort of people who were information uh, professionals in the United States who understood uh, how the Soviet Union, how the KGB uh, used and abused information to achieve geopolitical purposes. And all of those guys, right, that cohort, that brain trust has mostly uh, dissipated. And so as a result, um, we are getting surprised again and again by tactics that really haven't changed in terms of their strategic objective since, you know, in decades. Um, but what we, we've lost is we've seen this attrition of expertise. So the first step, I think, is to really get smart again on uh, how Russia uses uh, disinformation and misinformation, how Russia manipulates um, communication as a strategic tool. The second is a scaling uh, issue. Um, I, I, one of the sort of the most profound moments I had was I, I was uh, uh, in Eastern Europe. I was talking to NATO officials and I asked them a question that I tried to ask U.S. officials um, repeatedly um, as I was doing sort of the preliminary research for this book. Right. A very simple question. Uh, how much is Russia spending on disinformation? 
And the answers that I always got back were deeply unsatisfactory. Uh, oh, it's complicated. It depends what you measure. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, we can't talk about this in an unclassified setting. And I always found those answers to be really unsatisfactory because that should be the first question that a congressional appropriator asks, right? When, when uh, any administration, Republican or Democrat, comes to the Hill and says, hey, we need more money for countering Russian disinformation or countering Chinese disinformation, the first question should be, hey, how much are we spending? How much are they spending? You know, uh, can, uh, have we achieved parity? You know, wh wh what's the, how do we rack and stack? So when I was in Eastern Europe and I was talking to these NATO officials, I would ask them the same question. And I got the response and it was immediate. The Russians are spending, if you count the white budget and you count their, uh, their sort of their gray and black budgets, something on the order of two and a half million do billion dollars a year um, on disinformation, right? Everything from, uh, from the internet research agency of the late unlamented Yevgeny Prigozhin all the way to RT and Sputnik and what have you. Um, and the reason that figure is so significant is because it far outshines what we're doing currently. Um, what we have right now is uh, incomplete architecture uh, here in the United States. We have an, an agency called the U.S. Agency for Global Media that is intended to do public broadcasting and, and surrogate broadcasting. Um, it houses Voice of America, and it also you know, has grantees like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, some total of what the US Agency for Global Media is has requested, has received and appropriated from Congress is something like $850 million. When you add to that, the budget of the Global Engagement Center, which is now up for review on Capitol Hill, uh, that just adds another you know, 20, 30 uh, million dollars. So what you're actually looking at is a Russia that is spending, right, uh, in a war constrained economy is spending two and a half billion dollars annually on getting its message out to the world, in particular, the, uh, the global south, the developing world, where uh, their message resonates much more, um, much more deeply than we would think. And you compare it to the less than a billion dollars that the US government is currently spending to message against Russia, but also against China, against Iran, against uh, Turkey, against Qatar, against uh, the Islamic State, and right, the list goes on and on and on. And what you understand is there's a real resource mismatch. We're not even in the game in informational terms. Uh, which uh, in and of itself, right, is the most terrifying uh, element of this where uh, we think, why is it that we find it so hard to do this? I, 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 it's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, part of it is this sort of attrition of knowledge. Part of it is, um, you know, we're, we're sort of, we're, uh, a couple of generations past the heyday of when we really had a professional corpus that could do this really well. Part of it is the sort of the post-Cold War conceit, right? We won uh, the Cold War, the Soviets lost, and therefore um, we, we can sort of, you know, very easily set aside everything that allowed us to persevere then. Um, but also, I mean, there's this, uh, this uh, uh, Francis Fukuyama-esque idea that still persists, that we're at the end of history, uh, right? That we are, despite all the global conflicts that we have, we are sort of seeing the end of history and these sort of tactics that prevail before, they're not so germane now. But what we're discovering is that, you know, this, uh, this sort of asymmetric advantage that the Russians are, have gained from information manipulation is, uh, it's attractive, it's long lasting. And by the way, 
it's increasingly an export commodity because you're seeing more and more countries, aspiring global actors like Iran, like China, uh, that are beginning to take best practices from the Russians, beginning to take a page from the Russian disinformation playbook. And that, to me, is, is the biggest threat. Um, what are the lessons, as far as you're concerned, that uh, the Chinese are drawing from watching all of this, right? The Chinese are very active. They want to build the narrative uh, that the United States is weak or duplicitous. Uh, it is the provocateur. The Chinese, uh, the China offers a better model, uh, you know, worldwide in this in this competition. What are the lessons the Chinese are learning by watching watching what the Russians are doing? Well, first of all, you're seeing in kind of like you see in other strategic domains, in the informational domain over the last several years, you've really seen this triangulation of policy, this uh, what some scholars have called this axis of disinformation on issues like COVID, on issues like NATO expansion, on issues um, like uh, American policy in the Middle East that have been promoted by Russia, but have also been picked up by China and by Iran because uh, at least in a tactical sense, they advance the geopolitical objectives of those countries to uh, demonize the United States, to uh, sort of portray U.S. policy uh, in a negative light and force American uh, officials when they have the time to do it, when they have the inclination to do it, to sort of to go back and to rebut. Um, these sort of falsehoods are sticky. And so you're seeing increasingly China pick up uh, the, these sort of narratives. Right. And a great example uh, was uh, during COVID, um, right? These uh, questions about the origins of the virus, uh, questions about the efficacy of Western vaccines. These were all things that the Russians promoted in a very self-interested sense um, on their state television through their uh, disinformation outlets. But they were also tropes that were picked up by the Chinese and by the Iranians. And the Chinese uh, element of this conversation to me is the most decisive because what you really have is a uh, existential challenge, right? So we, we talked a lot about you know what the Russians are trying to do, but fundamentally the Russians are not trying to posit an alternative model of global organization to the United States. What they're trying to do is they're trying to denigrate democracy. They're trying to draw down international support and confidence in democratic institutions. The Chinese, though, have an alternative model. It's a model that uh, uh, creates trade-offs between prosperity and individual freedoms and what have you. But the Chinese are articulating a very different organization of the world. They're not just trying to inject noise into the system. So the thing that I worry about the most in this context is if we're not serious about dealing with the Russian disinformation threat, what hope, what chance do we have of really countering the Chinese ideological message moving forward. What are the lessons you're drawing from watching the information war, right? As kinetic as uh, the fight uh, between uh, Israel uh, and Hamas is in uh, Gaza in the wake of the, the, the terrible October 7 attacks, uh, there has been an equally heated information war worldwide. You just got back from uh, Morocco and Bahrain. Uh, you know, you explained that you were going through Istanbul and, you know, you're sitting in the terminal listening to a narrative of the war that doesn't jibe with what, you know, you consider reality. W walk us through what the important lessons here are, um, because they have rather potentially rather tectonic and lasting impacts on how this campaign is is perceived from an initial wrong 
to where we stand right now, where Israel is coming under incredible pressure worldwide uh, and having its own narratives questioned often, even sure. by its allies no, no. and friends. No, that, that's right. And, and I, I really, this trip, um, as I told you before we uh, started recording, this trip really hammered home to me that we collectively in the West have a massive messaging problem um, in the Middle East and North Africa, because uh, it's not just a question of, of seeing television channels that are spinning an alternative version of events. What you're seeing in places like Istanbul, but also in places like Rabat, also in places like Manama, is you're seeing television channels that are promoting patently false and discredited, right? Uh, proven to be false uh, narratives about the war. Um, and they're doing so in really an uncontested fashion. The one thing that really struck me was, you know, and I sort of was watching a lot of, of television on different channels and different languages. And what really struck me was that the narrative about the war was fundamentally different and fundamentally one-sided um, in the context of uh, how it was being reported. And in places like North Africa and places like the Middle East, um, that has an organic political effect. There is no counter messaging, right? The Israelis aren't doing it. We don't have media outlets um, that are injecting, you know, an alternative view of, of what's happening and, and trying to inject some context at least. And so what's happening is uh, you're hearing voices, uh, in many cases, very intolerant voices that are dominating the conversation and they're riling up the Arab street in a way that is very negative for Israel, for sure. But in the years to come, potentially very negative for us as well. Ilan, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, I commend folks to check out uh, the uh, report because it, it's really uh, very worthwhile. Thanks so very much uh, for joining us. Really Appreciate it and can't wait to have you back on again soon. All right. Thank you, Vaga. And thanks to all of you for joining us. We appreciate it very much. And a special thanks to Bell and all of our sponsors for making this program possible every day. We'll see you again tomorrow uh, for a special report from the ITSEC conference down in sunny Orlando. Thanks very much for joining us. Have a great day and we'll see you again tomorrow.